The federal data strategy needs a top-to-bottom rethinking in the view of one business group. The Information Technology and Innovation Foundation says the strategy simply doesn't serve the needs of a government trying to modernize and digitize. We get more now from the foundation's policy fellow, Eric Egan. Eric, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's just begin with a quick one-minute review. What is the federal data strategy? It's been around a while, and I think it was recently revisited, correct, by the uh, Biden administration. Revisited might be uh, too strong of a word, but uh, yeah, so essentially it was a, a, a Trump administration initiative. So the Trump administration had a um, cross-agency priority to kind of improve how the federal government uses data and kind of accountability and uh, accessibility around data. A part of that capital was did the development of a federal data strategy. So the OMB under Trump developed this kind of 10-year strategy to cross kind of government strategy to improve how the, how the federal government manages and uses data. And it kind of structured it um, according to 10 foundational principles, and it uses those which can be broken into 40 aspirational practices, kind of best practices, if you will. And then the concept is that every year there is a, a kind of tactical device, an action plan that each federal agency kind of has to adhere to in order to kind of progress the strategy overall. There is also a data act and there is also mandates by Congress to act on the part of federal agencies according to data-driven decision-making. So this is not something from outer space, really. Absolutely. No, that's that's a great point. And, and, you know, part of the – so both, you know, so the Evidence Act and the Open Government Data Act – which are um, Open Government Act is a part of the Evidence Act, but those both came out in 2018. So the the, the strategy itself is in many ways kind of a, a way for the federal agencies to kind of adhere and get get those um, you know congressionally mandated laws in place. And that's kind of one of one of the biggest shortcomings is one it, a lot of that congressionally mandated guidance that OMB is supposed to provide to agencies. So namely, open data access, you know, what they're supposed to do sure. in terms of providing, you know, the access to, to the public and to stakeholders, and then also data standards across federal agencies has just not been provided. That's a, a law. By law, they have to do that. And the strategy itself has certain actions to, to you know, publish open data and, and to adhere to those kinds of things. But without the guidance, agencies can't really comply with those kinds of actions. Well, could one reason for a lack of guidance be that for the Biden administration, They have a horror movie running in their heads all the time, and the name of that movie is It Came From Trump, which means it's anathema. So could they be just letting it die a natural death by not issuing any sort of guidance to implement it, do you think? It it could be, but the reason I think maybe not, and that it's just one of those things where – uh, you know, a change in administration and maybe they just didn't prioritize. But I I think it – the weird thing is is that they – you know, so the 2020 action plan was – released by Trump, but then the 2021, the last action plan that was released, which at this point is, you know, a few, a few years ago, you know, that was from the Biden administration. And, and the, the data strategy itself is, is, is fairly kind of generic, which is one of the other findings. And it's, you know, what, what any company or uh, other business would agree are, are pretty well-defined and decent in terms of high-level kind of pole stars for how a mature data organization should look like. So part of it's like, this is really an opportunity for the Biden administration to say, like, all right, this is, you know, this isn't moving particular mission outcomes from the Trump administration, but it has some good bones here. 
why can't we, you know, why not change this and make it and repurpose it for our our own mission outcomes? And- sure. We're speaking with Eric Egan. He's a policy fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And you're saying that, just a quote from the opening of your report, the federal data strategy suffers from a lack of leadership, as we've discussed, fails to link its well-defined principles and practices to government-wide and agency-wide missions or agency-level missions. So what should OMB do with this at this point? Can it be fixed and can it be made relevant and actionable? It can. It really is, you know, there's a few recommendations I include in my report and um, you know, one, one of the things OMB did was create this governance body, this oversight body called the Federal Data Policy Committee that hasn't really done anything, but it really should be the OMB body that's driving a lot of the work around government-wide data standards and, and these things that we're talking about. Getting that body in place, I think, is a, is a big one. I mean, by law, <laughs> the OMB has to provide this guidance around, you know, open data and standards, and this seems like a good body to do that. And there's just, you know, part of it is just taking the bones of the, the strategy and, and just kind of taking it to the next level. So that's thinking about what are the Biden administration's priorities so that, you know, they have aspirations around using AI, improving customer experience, improving efficiency, and then they have mission outcomes around, you know, addressing income and racial inequality. There's there's a bunch of things they want to do and better data governance is critical to supporting all of those. So there's an opportunity to kind of tweak the strategy to support those mission outcomes. And I think one of the other recommendations that Data Foundation also has supported is the creation of a federal CEO. So there is, in the same way that we have a federal CIO and a federal CIO council and agency CIOs, you know, OMB has a has a strong has strong leadership for the agency CIOs, but CDOs don't have that. And they they're really kind of, you know, of the CDOs I've, I've spoken to are really kind of flailing. They're flailing in, in terms of guidance. I mean, they're doing a lot of good work at the agency level, but they're kind of on their own and they and they, they feel as such. They Often they work under the CIO, so it's really unclear like where their seat at the table is. They're dealing with kind of funding and staffing short issues, you know, which many agencies executives are. But, you know, there's, there's an opportunity, especially with a federal CDO, to really put some fire under you know, what OMB has to do, and then kind of tweak the me- the action plan mechanism. You know, you can you can do this in such a way that works in a federated structure, right? So you can you can change how the action plan is developed, give agency CDOs more to work with. They can kind of contribute to what that action plan should look like so it works right, in line sure. with their missions. Yeah. Now, OMB is itself something of a constrained organization in terms of the number of people it has versus the n- lot of work it has to do. You see lights on late at night sometimes in the old executive office building and you know they have pizza coming in Saturdays and Sundays you got to give them that could that be one of the issues that they just haven't gotten around to it yet and would one strategy be to take some of those floundering or confused CDOs from the agencies and task them to some kind of a working group to come up with a action plan for the data strategy yeah yeah i think that's i think that's really the way of course, you know, there are, there are existing constraints and you're totally right that that's likely just, it, it just can't be prioritized given other things that are working out that are working out. But, but the, the reality is that data is data governance and use of data and in, in federal government is a huge priority. But, you know, one of the, they have some of these kind of paper entity mechanisms in place that if they just kind of evolve could do quite a, quite a bit. Like there's this notion of a data governance body, which is at the agency level. That's where you have, you know, maybe the agency level CDO working with his business colleagues to make really the action plan their own. 
So really, you have OMB not really having to do too much, being like, here are the kind of government-wide, here's really what we need to do year to year. There's an opportunity for you to take that action plan, adjust it, change it, make it make it your own, your own at the agency level. So it's really your action plan, but it, it aligns with the guidance that comes from OMB. So it's really just like using the constraints, understanding that there are constraints, but um, just being more thoughtful and tactical and and how you approach this, the strategy overall. And you mentioned AI a moment ago, and that idea, that emergence of AI seems to give this some urgency because AI is worthless or worse than yep. worthless. It can be damaging without training with the correct data. And so really the answer to having an AI strategy has got to be backed by a good data strategy. Fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's that's why, you know, to your earlier point, there's there should be momentum around this because the Biden administration is working on a national AI strategy that really has to align with an active, up-to-date, mission-oriented federal data strategy. Otherwise, that AI strategy is going nowhere if agencies have barely know where their data is and it's all in different formats. There's no standards. You know, they don't know how to share it with one another. Well, what if they just hired chat GPT, dumped the strategy as it stands now in there, see what comes out and they're good to go. I'm sure someone has done that. That's, that's <laughs> If they dare surface that document. Eric Egan is a policy fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.